and welcome to Grazia Life Advice, Grazia's podcast. I'm Rhiannon and each week I'll be interviewing women worth listening to and getting them to pass on the six best pieces of advice they've ever been given and the worst piece too. Our guest this week is comedian and podcast star Deborah Francis-White. Many of you all know Deborah thanks to her incredible podcast, The Guilty Feminist, and she's now written a book with the same title. A book like the podcast about embracing both feminism and our imperfections. It also features appearances from performers, activists and thinkers, not to mention an incredibly supportive quote on the front from none other than Emma Thompson, who calls it essential reading for the planet. So over to Deborah. I'm here with Deborah. How are you today? Rhiannon, I am very well and excited to be here at Grazia. Is this Grazia Radio, Grazia Podcast? Basically, yes. Grazia Radio, Grazia (laughs) FM. I'm going to start Grazia Radio. All the Grazia, all the time. Yeah. We're here to hear your best pieces, six best pieces of advice, Mm. um, but also to talk about the fact you've got this amazing book out. You've made The Guilty Feminist, your hugely successful podcast, is now a book as well. Mm. Yes. So if someone has somehow missed the memo I don't know how they would tell us what the guilty feminist is and what it's all about the guilty feminist is a podcast about our noble goals as feminists for gender equality and taking up more space in the world and allying for the sisterhood and our hypocrisies and insecurities which undermine those goals so there are times when I'm a feminist but so we start the podcast that way with some true confessions so for example here's one of mine I'm a feminist but one time I went on a women's rights march and I popped into a department store to use the loo. Yeah. And I got distracted trying out face cream. <laughs> and when I came out, the march was gone. Oh. And I look back at that and I'm like, yeah, uh, that's not ideal, but mm. it's kind of funny. And yeah. uh, I think you know, next time I went on a women's rights march, I stayed out longer. Mm. I think I got a bit, to be honest, scared of the crowd. And I got better at it. I got better at meeting yeah. up with friends. And now the Guilty Feminist gang goes out together with a sign. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're starting an official, you know, protesting group where mm-hmm. there's a place to meet and people bring and create different signs. It's going to be great. So I think um, the podcast is really about how to laugh at the things that don't matter. Mm. Like, it is true that I'm a feminist, but I was meant to be watching a four-part documentary on the suffragettes on BBC4 and... To be honest with you, I really watched six episodes of Say Yes to the Dress. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, that doesn't matter. It doesn't no. matter. What what difference does that make to anyone, really? Yeah. You can laugh about it. You exfoliate it. It's like exfoliating in the shower. Get rid of it. Yeah. But if there is something where you think, no, I'd like to get better at that because that is inhibiting me as a mm. woman, then strengthen it. Build the muscle. Talk about it. Put it on the table. And that's really what the podcast is about. Yeah. That's what I love about it. It's a place of no judgment, mm. which is um, sometimes can feel like it's a bit lacking when we might talk about subjects like feminism. Mm. It's great because you feel like if there's no judgment, then there can be learnings, as you say. Absolutely. You can get better at things when we can all kind of admit that sometimes we're not mm. perfect or we haven't got it right or we're awkward. We're like, think, am I allowed to talk about that? I don't, I don't know what that is yet. I need to learn about that. And it's just a, a sort of open play space and learning space. Yeah. You've had a fascinating life. Did you enjoy, because the book is partly about your, you know, your life. It's mm. not like a, as, much, as much as a manual about things like that. Did you enjoy going back? and looking at those kind of things yes I did and I think it's sort of it's great to look back because you you realize how far you've come Rihanna Mm. that's that's the nice thing about looking back is is the metric I think I don't like looking back if I think I'm in exactly the same place (laughs) nothing's changed yeah I only get depressed on my birthday if I feel I'm no further on long in my life this year if I've had a year where I feel like things have moved and I don't mean oh we have to be high achieving all the time but just like 
I feel warmer to myself this year. Yeah. I feel kinder to myself. I'm having more fun or um, I got that thing done. I wrote that book. I've always wanted to do that. Mm. Whatever it is that, that somehow this year is different from last year, then I'm like, I'm into it. Yeah. So I love looking back as long as I can see progress, change, you know, something, something shifted. Yeah. And there's been loads of change for you recently. It seems like everything's just getting bigger and better for you and, well, and the Guilty Feminist movement. I can't even explain to you how great this last year has been mm. in terms of, you know, women have to work a lot harder to break through in any industry. In comedy, it's particularly yeah. bad. You know, it's a bit like Mad Men comedy. You'll still be on a bill with all men. All men. <laughs> And the MC might still bring you out saying, the next one's a woman one, but don't worry, she's funny. Um, You'll see people in the front row going, I don't find women funny. Mm. Um, So it's still a bit mad many. Um, And so it's very hard for women to break through in comedy. So what's exciting is I've just made a pilot for Channel 4 called Next Week's News, which is a late night satirical topical comedy show which I'm very excited about we had a predominantly female writers room we need that in the UK we so need that yeah. um, so we're hoping to get a series at Channel 4 and the amazing the amazing merman Sharon Horgan yeah. um, and I have a movie out uh, called Say My Name I wrote it and it's about it's like an old-fashioned screwball comedy okay you remember screwball comedies yeah. like you know where the woman was the like interesting powerful one that didn't take any crap you know that sort of mm. like I can, I can, I can write a newspaper article better than you or any man, and I'll, I'll do it right now. And 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 what are you doing kissing me? I don't want to kiss you. I don't want to kiss you or any man. Yeah. And uh, that that sort of uh, is sort of, that sort of thing. But it's a contemporary version of that. So there's a very powerful woman at the heart. She's the surprising one. She's the driver, and he's sort of it's a one night stand gone wrong basically and he's sort of following her around, oh, yeah. uh, and she's the she's the one that knows and understands and is fun and is playful. Um, and that's called Say My Name, hashtag Say My Name movie, if you'd like to see that at a cinema near you. And it's in the Liverpool Film Festival, which we're very excited oh, about. Um, and we have the Guilty Feminist book, which is uh, ex- so exciting because it's, it's really a much more deep dive than I've been able to do on the podcast. Mm-hmm. And I've had to research and really rethink what I think about feminism and guilty feminism. Uh, and I also commissioned a musical that I'm now doing some story and dramaturgy on uh, called Suffragetten. Amazing yeah. hip-hop musical about the suffragettes by women of colour. It's incredible and I'm so proud of it. And it's, it's, it's in development. We've performed the first 20 minutes at the, um, at the Palladium and I've got two standing ovations in 20 wow. minutes. So I'm very, very excited. Um, Sunday Times called it the Britain's Answer to Hamilton. So, so many exciting things. But it's like years and years and years of work and I feel like all my dreams are coming true, but all in the same week. Okay. So I'm like, you know, slightly adrenaline. You can yeah. hear it in my voice. <laughs> slightly hyper, Rihanna. Yeah. Slightly hyper. Good. You're higher in life. I'm happy with that. Um, so can we move on to your piece of advice? We like to ask people to pass on advice. And I'm sure you have loads. If we could start, what's your first piece of good advice you've had in the, over the years or, or learned over the years? Well, I worked with a man called Keith Johnston. Uh, who teaches impro, call it comedy improvisation. And he said, if you want to be more powerful, Mm -hmm. try holding your head stiller when you talk. Now, not still like a a rock. You're not the terminator. Still like a pond. So if I say with a still head, my name is Bond, (laughs) James Bond, you will feel that I'm powerful and you will feel like I'm really present in the room. Whereas if I say, um, if I move my head now, now the listeners can't see me moving my head, but they can hear it. If I say, oh, my name's Bond, uh, James Bond, Mm. just looks like I've forgotten the order of my own name. My name's Bond, James Bond is not a great catchphrase. It looks like you've said your last name first. You forgot to say your first name. (laughs) 
And now you're doing a quick follow-up. Yes. But if you say, my name's Bond, James Bond, with mm-hmm. a still head, it looks like your name's so important, people have to hear it twice. Yeah. If you are ever stuck in the lift with the CEO, mm-hmm. you know that feeling where you're thinking, oh, God, I'm talking and talking and can't stop. Oh, yeah. I'd love to stop talking now. Not an option. Hold your head stiller. And magically, the rest of your body will suddenly have a power and you'll feel like, well, I can stop. I've never heard that before. That's amazing. It's in the book. Do you use it a lot? Do you use it? Yeah. Yeah. And usually intuitively now. And usually it's now in my, in my person. So I don't have to think about it. Mm. But if I am in a situation where I feel I need more power, I'm being pushed into a corner or negotiated into mm. a margin, I just put it into manual. And I go, still ahead than normal. It doesn't <laughs> have to be as still as the Terminator. Okay. But still are the normal. And a front foot energy. That's the other thing. Okay. If you come towards the audience, say you're doing a presentation, mm-hmm. you don't go towards people you're fr- frightened of. You mm-hmm. back away from people you're frightened of. So as soon as you lean towards your audience and your head's still at the normal, mm-hmm. you suddenly can own the whole room and the whole audience has confidence in you. I was going to say, is it a chicken and egg thing that, you know, even if you're not feeling the confidence, it brings the confidence out of you as much as people thinking you're... Yeah, it's, it it's two things. One is the audience can't see how you're feeling. Mm. And by audience, I mean, it could be an audience of people watching you do a presentation. It could be one person in a meeting. It could be how people perceive you at a networking event or at the, you know, parents event at the school or whatever. Mm. Um, I just mean the people who are looking at you. Firstly, they can only see what you're doing. They can't see how you're feeling. Mm. They make guesses about how you're feeling based on what you're doing. Mm-hmm. So if you're leaning on the front foot, if you're still in the normal, if your movements have beginnings and ends and aren't just sort of fluid uh, movements that are never going to end, uh, if, they, if, you're, if your gestures have beginnings and ends, yeah. they will guess that you feel confident. And your biochemistry will go, oh, this is interesting. I thought we were prey because on the savannah, say, if you if I'm on a safari even today and I wander away on my own and I come across 30 eyes looking at me and I'm the only one looking in this direction, I'm probably prey, I'm probably lunch. Mm. The fear of public speaking is essentially the fear of being eaten. Audiences look a lot like predators because they sit and stare. They don't give you those little micro signals that one yeah. individual nods and, you know. Um, so you feel like prey and that's why you do that pacing and that like looking at your feet and that sort of like, oh, I don't know where to put my hands. You know, when you, you're on stage and you think, mm. what do I do with my hands? Mm. Like hands are new for the presentation. <laughs> yeah, I've never had them for the last 30 years. Yeah, yeah, I've been given this slide deck and now these, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, I would question what you would do without your hands at such short notice. Yeah. Uh, but no one ever says that in the pub. No one ever says, by the way, what do I do with my hands? Mm. They only say that when they're presenting something. Because in the pub, you don't feel like prey. No. So the, the, the biochemical response that you have to backing away from an audience is that your amygdala will be, ap- will be activated. It's a loop. Mm. Um, you'll start to, your heart will start to beat a bit faster. Do you know why you're getting ready to run? Because on the savannah, you would have had very little time to mm. live unless you got ready to run, climb a tree, get away. So that's what stage fright is, is the fear of being eaten. God. So you can, you can counteract that because if you're the only one looking in this direction, you've got 30 eyes or 100 eyes looking in this direction or even six, 
and you come towards your audience, you open your body up, you make yourself stiller and slower, your brain goes, I thought we would pray, because historically and prehistorically, that's the most likely explanation for this situation. Mm. But no prey would make themselves stiller, slower, no prey would come towards the predator. So there's only, only one other explanation. Mm. I must be the lion in charge of the pride. I must be Henry V. <laughs> so in front of an audience, you've got two options. You can be the, the lion in charge of the pride or you can be the gazelle in, mm. char- in front of the lions. That's, that's it. People say, oh, I just want to be myself. I just want to be my authentic self in front of an audience. It's not a thing. Mm. It's not a thing. It's not possible. You have to create a new authentic self because your brain is so good at identifying danger and 10 eyes of people not giving you those little lovely mm. micro signals of oh, we're with you, which audiences don't because the responsibility is diluted between them, is a, is a danger signal to your brain. Yeah. And we are the children of survivors. So we're very good at identifying danger. So you have to put yourself into the Henry V, into the lion in charge of the pride. And then you can find your authentic new self there. I love that. And I love that people probably take it into their days now. Everyone's going to be walking around, heads still. <laughs> exactly. Uh, your second piece of advice, Deborah. Uh, my second piece of advice is also um, a, a broken down in the book about, uh, in the chapters about confidence. Mm. Um, there's a lot more material about uh, Lion and Child for the Pride in there as well. But the second piece of advice is uh, a chap called Philip Kidson uh, from The Mindful Place. And mm-hmm. sometimes I go to him when I, you know, I need to be more mindful and to just get into a better space visualising things. And he's great. He's a really, really interesting guy. And um, I think he's going to have an app soon and a book and things like that mm. to, you know, but you can go visit him if you're in London. And uh, I was thinking about confidence and I was thinking about writing about it for the book and he said what's the root of the word and he, he started asking me about roots of words and sometimes when you're struggling with something or you don't quite know what you think go back to the root of the word and the root of the word for confidence is a latin root confidere do you know what it means no trust okay do you trust yourself so you think of a confidence man he's a trickster he's going to betray your confidence mm you think of betraying someone's confidence it's like i told you that you betrayed my confidence Mm. i can't trust you now so when we say he seems confident or she seems confident what we're saying is that person trusts themselves Mm. and so in the book i started to break it down and go okay so i trust myself to be able to do this that's one part of confidence the other part is i can signal that i trust myself to the room to the tribe I can tell you, I trust myself, so you should trust me. And the third sort is tribal confidence. So if a woman comes into the room and she's the director on the film, mm. you will see a certain amount of people going, oh, the director's a woman. Right. Or the comedian's a woman, the CEO's a woman. And there will be a lack, often, of tribal confidence because that's not what a CEO, a director, a judge, a, an MP looks like. Mm. And so the woman has to signal, I'm really confident, or find a way of getting tribal confidence Mm. and that's why when people say women should be more confident like what you're really saying is we should not listen to our experience Mm. which has told us that often the tribe doesn't have confidence in us and we have to prove ourselves that a little bit more and so that's really helpful if you are struggling with something look at the root of the word advice from philip kidson and with confidence do you think that is is that a key that's going to unlock a lot of things for a lot of people? You talk, obviously talked a lot about confidence and, you know, you were saying about how it's not something we've, we're as familiar with. Is it, a key, is it the key to a lot of things for women and moving things on? Yeah, I mean, I think it's the key to a lot of things for men as well. But men are, 
are gifted a lot of confidence. Not all men. Hashtag not all men. Um, but society assumes that men will do stuff. Mm. Who's going to walk on the moon for the first time? I think we should give that to a man. <laughs> Who's going to run this country? I think it definitely should be a man. Mm. Who's going to sit on the board and decide what happens to these, the future of this company? Should we get 12 men in? Yeah. So there's an assumption of tribal confidence. And so, yes, men do the stuff that they do because of confidence, because society trusts them and they are taught to trust themselves. And feminism needs to address that mm. because we have also watched all the movies where the man ran to the airport or lifted up the boom box. So the man, questionable behavior, but uh, the man <laughs> it walked on the moon for the first time. Yeah. The man climbed the mountain, did the dangerous thing, jumped out of the aeroplane, whatever it is. We've also seen that. Mm. We haven't seen that many images of women trusting themselves and society trusting women. So, yeah, it's something we need to address in order to narrow this deep power imbalance that we see in society and we see ourselves underrepresented. Yeah, absolutely. Your third piece of advice, Deborah. Third piece of advice was really from Bisha Kayali, who I interview in the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, she started to teach me about uh, my own privilege as a white woman, as a straight woman, as a mm-hmm. non-disabled woman. Um, and it's something that I think... I've then really tried to pass on to the podcast listeners that so many people have said to me, I tuned in as a woman to hear about my own oppression, to learn about my oppression. Where am I being oppressed? How am I being marginalized? And what I learned about more than anything was my own privilege. Mm. Oh my God, these are doors I can go through that other women never get to even look at. And I can help other women. And in some cases, men. Um, There are times when we have more privilege than men. You know, as a white woman, if I go out into the street and say that point to a black man and say he stole my iPhone, Mm. the police will immediately go up to him and they will probably be quite rough um, and aggressive or um, in some way they will assume that he's done that. Mm. But if he points to me and says she stole my iPhone, they'll They'll be like, really? Mm. And if they do come up and approach me, they'll say, sorry, perhaps there's been a bit of a mistake. Is there any chance you could have accidentally taken this gentleman's iPhone? Yeah. So our our privileges and our oppressions are on intersections. And that's what intersectional feminism is. It's mm. looking at the intersections of class, race, disability. You know, you might have a black woman who's a lesbian. So she's got all sorts of ways in which she's marginalized. Mm. But there might be a woman behind her in a wheelchair and that woman who might be a woman of colour and uh, queer comes up to the building, just walks in without thinking about it, runs up the stairs. So, you know, we've all got Mm. oppressions, we've all got privileges, but it's really important to note where your privileges are, especially Mm. if you are white, because that's the biggest privilege in the world. Is that something you've come to recently? I, I've heard you talk on the podcast about being an ally and allies a word that kind of gets thrown around a lot, a lot now about, you know, trying to make sure we're allies to, to people. Is it something you've come to more recently and you didn't realise that you needed to be more? Yes, very much through the podcast I've realised it, through interviewing women of colour and getting more women of colour on, more more gender-fluid women on mm. or gender-fluid people on, um, um, more disabled people on. I've learned, I've listened and, you know, other people's life experiences are different and in some ways much, much, much more difficult. And what I can do 
to make them easier is important. Mm. What I can do to include is absolutely vital. Because it's no good saying, well, men need to include me more and more space needs to be made for me. It's so difficult for me being a woman in comedy. Mm. And then not looking around and going, but where is it easy? Where are doors open? And they look like corridors to me. Mm. They look like rooms with doors. They just look like it all open plan. Mm. And where are those doors shut and locked in the face of other women or other men in some situations? Yeah. Uh, is there any situation you can think of where you look now and you think, I didn't even realise I had that privilege? Yes. Um, I'll tell you a story. Um, when I first got to London, I'd learned to drive in a small Australian beach town where everything was easy, the roads were pretty open and straight. And somebody said, well, you're going to have to be very assertive to drive in London because right. Londoners do not let you out. They're very aggressive. You have to just get in. You can't dither. And I was really nervous because I got a job as a nanny and I had to drive these three kids around. And if, if you lose even one child to a traffic accident, <laughs> it seems bad form. So I got in the car and I thought I'd better take it for a test drive. And I mm. pulled out very nervously and uh, it was fine. And I pulled out, you know, turned the corner. It was absolutely fine. And I, I, I put the kids in. It was fine. And I drove around for six months and I discovered it was an absolute stereotype about Londoners. They were very polite drivers and they did let you in. And I was like, this is not the case at all. And then I got a boyfriend. Don't want to brag, Ryan. Don't want to brag. <laughs> and he one day said, oh, why don't you drive my car? And um, uh, I tried to pull out into traffic mm. and I couldn't. I tried to pull it out into traffic and I couldn't. And I ended up getting backed up down a cul-de-sac. And I was like, what's going on? And he looked at me and he went, oh, oh, no, 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 you can't drive this car the way you drive the Land Rover. And I went, what? Right. He said, you can't drive this car the way you drive the Land Rover, like a tank down the middle of the road and everyone gets out of your way. I said, I don't drive this. I don't drive the Land Rover like a tank and everyone gets out of my way. He said, oh, yeah, you do. You drive it like a tank and everyone gets out of your way because they're going to come off worse. And I was, he said, you can't drive this car like, th- like that. It's a, it's, a, it's a VW Golf. No one's going to get out of your way. And I went, oh, I thought everyone else was polite. Turns yeah. out I'm an asshole. <laughs> you had Land Rover privilege. Right? And it, that's the same for tall white posh men called Toby with pinky rings. They don't know. They don't know they're being rude. They think yeah. you're polite because they've only ever mm. driven a tall white posh body. They've only ever known people to get out of the way. Boris Johnson yeah. knows that when he walks into a room, he will be included. People will say, oh, Boris, come over here and you must meet this most influential person because he was educated at Eton. He was yeah. tall. Um, he had the accent. And every room he went into, he was included. He has no experience mm. of you know, walking through the world and navigating through the world as a, as a, as a five foot four Korean woman. He doesn't know <laughs> what that is. Yeah. So he thinks it's as easy for that Korean woman as it is for him. Mm. Now, the thing is, that's what privilege is because when I first pulled out, I was not confident. I did not trust myself. I had been told it would be very difficult. So I pulled out tentatively and with no confidence or no trust in myself. And what they saw was a dithery tank right. and if it's a, the tanks being driven in a terrified manner oh my god we really should get out of the way because this person doesn't know what they're doing and they're going to ram into my vw golf so yeah. i'm going to back up and let them through so the second time i drove it was a, still nervous thinking oh my god this might be the difficult one no oh it's easier oh it's, it's fine oh it's yeah. fine so i gained confidence until i was driving down the middle of the road assuming this is how it was. People get out of your way. Now, up until the point where I realized that, mm. I wasn't doing it on purpose. There wasn't a great experience for other people, but I didn't know. Once I found out, I decided I was going to get out of other people's way 51% of the time. Yeah. Because 
you know, for a little bit of you know, 55% of the time. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's my turn. Yeah. But if you continue to drive the same way, once you understand your privilege, that's when it's really problematic. And if you won't listen, if you won't hear it, if you, if you just go, no, 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 everything's fine the way it is, then I'm questioning it. Mm. I love that analogy. That's great. Your fourth piece of advice, Deb. Uh, so my fourth piece of advice um, is around the Me Too movement. Mm. Um, and it's really about the climates that are created, the microclimates that are created. So um, Franklin Leonard is an amazing man. He created the blacklist in Hollywood. Mm. And this was not so much a piece of verbal advice that he gave me, but something that I saw and took on for myself. So, you know, sometimes you take advice from somebody who hasn't directly said, you should do this. Yeah. Um, He did something remarkable. He um, went on holiday. He was was a script reader Mm. in Hollywood trying to, De- develop scripts for film stars basically and you know develop material and find the great scripts and you know develop them for particular actors and he was struggling to find the scripts that he wanted so he wrote an email to a hundred about a hundred of his colleagues people he knew in the business and said would you send me a list of the best unproduced screenplays that you've read this year in response to say thank you for your contribution, I'm going to compile a list of the ones that are frequently mentioned and I'm going to send it back to you. And he did that and then he went on holidays and turned his email off. And mm-hmm. when he came back, there was this huge uh, excitement around it because um, lots and lots of people had mentioned a script called Juno. Juno was about a teenage pregnancy. Mm-hmm. It was seen to be too edgy for everyone. Uh, there's... Uh, a scene where she can considers abortion. There's a there's a question of whether she's a likable character or a moral character. Ooh, we don't know what to do, to do with this. Mm. So everyone had passed on it and thought, my boss is going to think I'm mad if I bring them this because this is not the kind of film that is made in America. But when it appeared on the list, I don't know, I'm making up the numbers, but like 70 times out of 100, yeah. for example, suddenly everyone went, well, hold on. If everyone loves this, there's something in it and maybe audiences are going to love it. And then there became this sort of fight about who was going to get to make it. Mm. And this method effectively changed which voices got to make scripts in Hollywood. And and Franklin has developed this idea in all sorts of amazing ways. And you can read about how he did that in the book. What he did was find another metric for anticipating whether something was going to be successful that included diverse voices. And that's what the Me Too movement is. It changed the metric, which changed the architecture. Now it's not about, well, we've got this big star in the role and she's just not as valuable to the project. So if she's going to complain about this abuse of power, she's going to go. We can't afford to lose him. Me too has changed the metric for success because now if you're seen to be harboring somebody who's an abuser and employing them, your whole company can go down. So now women are being heard, of different voices being heard. Mm. So I took from Franklin's example some advice and the guilty feminist is a space, really, it's a microclimate and Franklin taught me that word, a microclimate uh, for success for women. 
because when women come out onto the stage, our audience who love to hear the podcast will go, oh my God, I'm getting to see Susan McCober live. And they cheer because they've heard her on the podcast so many times. Mm-hmm. They love her. Oh my God, it's Bishop K. Ellie. Oh my God, it's Felicity Ward. It's Jessica Foster Q. And they get so excited about the comedians coming out and they cheer. And then the tribal confidence that they endow that comedian with, they go, well, you're going to be brilliantly funny. You're going to be insightful. We mm-hmm. love you. We're so happy to, uh, to have you here. We're so excited. That you see that woman saw including me, you know, we saw in those environments because everybody is so excited to see us. And even if it's a new woman they've never seen, they go, oh my God, a new woman we've never discovered before, the guilty feminist, we're going to learn, you know, we're going to learn something new. We're going to hear from someone new. We assume you're going to be great. And so many women have said to me, wow, this must be what what it's like to be a white straight male comedian in a comedy club. (laughs) You come out and people go, you look like one of the guys off live at the Apollo or, you know, you you look like what a comedian looks like. I bet you're going to be funny. And so I've created, and I talk more in the book about the microclimate of the guilty feminist, but also of Global Pillage, another comedy panel show I do for a podcast about how it's like a petri dish where I've discovered if you just put things in and let them grow, you can create your own microclimate. And I talk also about how we can do that because I think when men are mentored in a business context, it's like they're put into a Top Gun Academy. Mm-hmm. You're the best of the best. We're going to make you better. When women are mentored, it's remedial. It's like oh, well, you need to work on your confidence. And oh, we'll give you a little pot of money for a special woman lady prize. And then you could do a little lady project. Mm. And it's always like this little marginal idea that you're not as good as a man, but we'll give you a special pot of money to encourage you. Mm. And I think we need to start creating Top Gun Academies that are mixed gender, slightly weighted more more women than men, because traditionally it's always more men than women. Mm. Men outnumber women like seven or eight or nine to one. So I think we should say 60-40, female to male, Top Gun Academies. No one's getting a special little remedial prize or yeah. pot of money. It is an, it's a Top Gun Academy for the best people. Um, and just, just look to have a mixed gender group. Find your absolute stars. And you will find so many female stars in whatever industry you're in because women tend to have to work harder to prove themselves. Mm. Um, and put them all together and see if that changes things. So I've got other ideas for sort of creating your own microclimate. You can read about them in the book. I want to attend that academy. (laughs) Who doesn't want to be in the Top Gun Academy? (laughs) Your fifth piece of advice, Deborah. My fifth piece of advice um, is to stop talking about what you're not eating. Okay. When I meet women, so often the conversation starts, even a business meeting, but often a brunch or something like that. So you look great. What are you not eating? Oh, well, I'm, I'm not eating carbs. I've cut out carbs. Oh, what are you not eating? I'm not eating sugar. Oh, what are you not eating? I'm not eating Mondays and Wednesdays. <laughs> I'm on the five two. Well, yeah. you look amazing. Oh, well, yeah. How's that working for you? And then, w- w- you know, what exercise are you doing? Oh, well, I'm, I'm at, you know, I'm, I go to this boot camp now and it's just really amazing because they play this really loud music and I just feel really good. Mm. Well, I only do hot yoga now because I find that's just like really changed like how I feel and my, the shape. My, and it just... This body obsession that we all participate, and in the book I call it a cult, um, because I think it has the hallmarks, because I was you know, in the Jehovah's Witnesses for quite a long time, and it's a high control group, and I feel it has the hallmarks of a cult, mm. but we're all in it. So when I left the Jehovah's Witnesses, I, I, I started mixing with other people, and, and, and it wore off. But where do I go? Because it's everywhere. Yeah. Women are taught The first and most important thing about us is how we look. Mm. And then these articles go around the internet like, um, oh, 
um, men don't, science proves in a new study that men don't find funny women attractive. Mm. Oh, if, a, if you're, you earn more than your partner, you can emasculate him. Men don't find funny women sexy. Oh, men don't find clever women sexy. And I'm being actually told on a constant basis by the internet that not only is how I look the paramount thing about me, the first, the first and most important thing about me, but also I lose brownie points for these other things. I'll be less attractive mm. and less welcome in rooms with men if I am clever, successful and funny. What? Yeah. I actually lose brownie points for other good things. It's not like pretty and it's like, no, just be pretty. Just sit there and shut up. Yeah. And this is why teenage girls are like, oh, no, I won't do sport. I don't want to be sweaty. Oh, I'll just laugh at his jokes. So I won't be funny. I mean, this is a pernicious culture. It's, mm. it's a cult. Um, and the reason it matters is because if we go in to apply for funding for our film or our charity, our project or whatever it is, our passion project, and we're constantly being bombarded with the idea that cosmetic uh, affairs are the most important thing how we look whether we look like you know the women of series four friends <laughs> how close we look to that that's the aspiration you know yeah. you can be j-lo or you can be J- J- you know jennifer aniston one mm. of those one of the jennifers fine um if we're constantly bombarded with these images and we constantly think this is the most important thing about us we go into the funding meeting with a man a man who is older than us a man who is less billboard attractive than us and he's not thinking about that. No. He's thinking either his body is a perfectly good example of the genre or not relevant in a business context. That's not to say he's not insecure. Mm. He might be thinking, oh, God, I'm a bit bald and I'm going on a date. It's of course. But in a business context, he's never sent a message that that matters. Mm. As long as he's basically wearing decent clothes without holes in them, yeah. nobody's going to question it. And even then, sometimes if they do, they do a thing sometimes called manchevling. It's my, it's my turn of phrase, manchevling. And it's when... Um, a man is so eccentrically dressed, he must be a genius. Give him an opera to direct. Um, whereas if a woman was dressed like that, he was just, she just wouldn't get anywhere. Um, so what I'm saying mm. um, is we've got to fight that collectively. Because if you're giving out little micro signals that you hate your body and you hate yourself, you're not even on your own team. If, I can't, if I'm not even on my own body's team when I walk into the funding meeting, I am less likely to get it because I'm giving out signals. So we've got to stop the conversation, what are you not eating? Mm. Because as you say, it's, even when it's not being talked about, it's being talked about. So when we talk about body confidence... Mm-hmm. We're talking about, oh, I'm a size 16, but it's okay. So we are still Mm. talking about it. We can't get outside of it, as you say. Exactly, yeah. We're constantly obsessed with it. And every woman I know Mm. has, that I know, you know, I'm not, I don't know how every woman I know (laughs) feels, but the women that I know intimately and we talk, you know, which is quite a large group where we talk, you know, closely and we share our secrets and our feelings Everyone has some kind of weird relationship with their bodies, their, mm. their food, their exercise in some way or another. Even as you say, if it's like I'm really trying to be body positive or fat positive or I'm, I'm not doing this anymore, I'm eating mindfully. Or I'm, we're all talking about it. We're all, mm. we're all thinking about it. And I think in, there's a chapter about how to sort of get into that happier place with it. And I'm really looking forward to being uh, unconsciously competent. I'm yeah. still not there. I'm trying to be consciously competent at the moment mm. in how I deal with food and exercise. Mm. And I, I really want to be in that place where I don't even think about it. I just go to yoga because I love yoga. I eat when I'm hungry. I eat something that I, I, I crave nutritious food. 
sometimes I want a lovely piece of chocolate cake mm. and I'm not thinking all the time about depriving myself or shouldn't have that or I should have it because I'm body positive or any of that. I'm just consciously, un- I'm just unconsciously competent. You're just living. Yeah. Yeah. Like I see men do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Your sixth piece of advice, Deborah. Uh, my sixth piece of advice I can't remember who told me this now, but this is a this is a bit of a dessert course one. This is a bit of a naughty one. Mm. Um, that sexy clothes. This is so not a guilty feminist piece of advice. I can't believe I'm telling you this. Where are we going? It's not a guilty feminist piece of advice. We're off piste. Okay. We're off piste here. That often we think that sexy clothes need to be revealing, but in fact, sexy clothes are unstable. So if you look at Jennifer, if you look at Angelina Jolie. Mm-hmm. She's actually very rarely like showing anything, but she always looks like she's got a bit of silk draped over her that might fall off at any point. Right. And that is actually more mesmerizing because it's the promise of what you might see. Once you've, once you've, once we're just looking at it, it's not as compelling as something maybe sliding off. Yeah. So I've noticed it myself um, that if I've got a sort of sleeve that keeps sliding down my shoulder and I sort of put it back up, Mm. that that in a flirty situation is more compelling than just having a low cut top or a backless dress. This is so naughty. This is so off piece. This is not <laughs> guilty feminism. But Ill I'm just saying, and if you days. want to wear a revealing top, you knock yourself out because revealing tops are awesome. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not slut shaming uh, uh, no. tops, but I'm just saying I got this piece of advice years ago and I think, and I've passed it on and I think it is true. You become more riveting if the top might reveal at any moment. <laughs> so we, so if you're thinking, oh, I'm going on a hot date. Yeah. Unstable clothing. Unstable I mean, thing. make sure it is stable yeah. so that you're not thinking, oh God, you know, you don't want to look underconfident by going, oh no, is it falling off? Yeah. Just so you know, an ideal piece of clothing. And if someone could design this for me, something where I, I could just sort of, with a little flick of the shoulder, make it slide down the shoulder. Oh, yeah. Exactly when I wanted to and not before. But it should always look like it might slide down so that I can be more riveting in a flirtatious situation. (laughs) That's amazing. And we like to end the podcast on the worst piece of advice people have been given because people love giving advice. Mm. And it's quite often given by people when it's not welcome. So can you think of a time someone's given you terrible advice? A time when someone's given me terrible advice. Um, Be more demure. (laughs) That that I was told once uh, that... Uh, men prefer a woman who listens and doesn't talk, a, a woman who uh, is, you know, decorative but not sort of taking up space, demure, be more demure. And that's going to make you attractive. And frankly, sod that. Yeah. No. <laughs> I mean, what a life. I Sitting know. in a corner being slightly decorative. No, I'm not interested in that at all. No. Uh, yeah, I think leave the demure to maybe like five attractive French women who can pull it off but maybe I don't know I mean I don't know but why do they want to be I mean if Mm. people want to be demure then of course they should be demure but I mean nobody should be advising anyone to be demure no amazing thank you so much Deborah Um, it has been an absolute delight and thank you so much for having me Rihanna cheers Thank you so much to Deborah for all that brilliant advice. So good. Her book is The Guilty Feminist from our noble goals to our worst hypocrisies, and it's out now. You can also subscribe to her podcast. If you're enjoying our podcast so far, please do subscribe, rate us, review us. It really, really helps to spread the word. We look forward to seeing you next week for more advice from women worth listening to.